0: Well, as you came in today and received uh, your worship folder, inside of there is a little prayer card. It's kind of a tool that we created last year and revised for usage this year. So I'm gonna refer to that at a certain point in the message, so make sure you uh, have a hold of that. And then also, as we wrap up uh, prayer week uh, tonight, we're gonna gather together for uh, what's called a silent assembly. Now, if you're a person who says, hey, uh, we have regular prayer meetings here, and you're like, I don't go to those because uh, I may have to pray out loud, I may pray with someone, I'm comfortable praying out loud, then listen, the silent assembly is your ticket, all right? Because you're gonna come and just do exactly what it says, gather together silently in prayer. And so if you're uh, hesitating about praying out loud, I encourage you to come tonight and help us close out Prayer Week Strong in a silent assembly. And also, if you're a person who says, man, I, I could never pray for 10 minutes or 30 minutes or, or certainly I could not pray for an hour, uh, tonight in that silent assembly, we're going to give you a tool and a resource and practice the pattern of how to pray intentionally for an hour. So if you think, man, that's something I would love to learn and grow in, uh, but I don't want to pray out loud, then come tonight and help us close out Prayer Week strong by gathering together tonight for our silent assembly. I could not encourage you enough to be here with us tonight to wrap up Prayer Week 2020. Hey, let's do a uh, little survey this morning. How many of you have ever been around, had a conversation with, been in close proximity to someone who's incredibly Famous could could be a star athlete, could be a movie star, could be something like this. so. Anybody been around a truly famous? Wow, more way more than the, than the first uh, service. And so uh, clearly, God's favors on the second service. Write that down, right? So uh, I, I've never, uh, only one time I should say, have I been in the presence of someone who truly is like an A list uh, type of person? I had a couple false alarms, both uh, for me and then for people who are around us. Uh, one time uh, I was uh, thought, man, i here. I'm having this. In, Conversation with the lead singer of Rascal Flats. Like, he and I talking back and forth, and I just said, This is incredible, it's incredible. And then I realized it was just Pastor Kyle when we were in a staff meeting, right? So a lot of people are like, He looks like him, he sounds like him. And so, uh, but then uh, we've had other false alarms. This has happened probably three or four times uh, in the last 20 plus years uh, where we have gone somewhere and someone thinks that Tasha is Reese Witherspoon. So if you've ever seen my wife or met my wife, she's uh, she's on stage sometimes. She's uh, leads on our worship team a little bit. She's she's really short, and so um, so she has a resemblance to Reese. Witherspoon, And uh, there's been a couple times we've been out, someone literally thought she was Reese Witherspoon. One time in the drive-thru, the lady would not let her leave because she kept saying, I know it's really you, and you're just trying to fool me. I know it's really you. And so I told her, I was like, you should sign autographs and get some, make some money off this thing, right? And we'd give it all to missions. I just want to say that if she did that, we'd give it, be used for the Lord, right? It's not, not shady at all. One time, I've been in the presence of someone who is truly world renowned. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Pastor Chris and I were at a conference in Virginia, and uh, there was a long break in between the sessions in the conference. And uh, so he and I are both history buffs. And I said, hey, we're not that far from Thomas Jefferson's house, Poplar Forest. And I said, let's drive over there. I said, I've always wanted to see it, man. It's just incredibly cool. And so, so we drive over to Poplar Forest, and, and we're just kind of hanging out. And we, we, you know, you got to take this little tram up to the where the house is at. And so we get up there and uh, there's this long kind of sidewalk to get up to the house. It's probably uh, literally like this sidewalk all the way to the back of the room. It's a long sidewalk to get up to Poplar Forest. And so uh, I'm kind of there. Pastor Chris is behind me a little bit. And so I'm getting up there. I'm kind of looking up ahead of the house, You know, kind of looking at it. And I start to see this um, elderly person like, come around kind of the corner to get on the sidewalk in a wheelchair. And so uh, it isn't until they come get directly in line with me that I realize that all these people from the left side and the right side start filling in behind them and beside them. And so as they start to make their way down the sidewalk, I'm making my way up the sidewalk. And by now, there is an entourage around this person. They're coming down the sidewalk to the point where I have to step off to the side to let this person and their entourage pass. And as they get close to me, I realize, and I turn around and tell Chris, I'm like, that's Muhammad Ali coming down the sidewalk. And he responds to me with all the love and compassion the pastor would have, you're an idiot, no it's not. And then I turn back around and he gets up next to me, he says, that's Muhammad Ali coming down the sidewalk. I'm like, I know, right? Right. And so I try to get close to him. His security's like, you know, kind of checking us, you know, like out of the way, out of the way. They're like, we, can, we, can we introduce ourselves? The security guy's like, absolutely not. Leave Mr. Ali alone. He gets into a vehicle. He usher him over there, entourage him. We're like, hey, can we get a picture? He's like, absolutely not. Do, you know, you can't do any of those kind of things. So, so I was truly in the presence of someone who's one of those famous people who's ever walked the planet. And I could not even stand on the sidewalk with them, let alone get a picture of them from like 20 or 30 feet away. Now, contrast that to Matthew chapter 8, when the greatest outcast who'd ever walked the planet in that culture has an encounter with the King of Kings, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ himself. Would you take your Bibles, your phones, your tablets, and turn with me there to Matthew chapter 8 for a message titled, How to Approach Jesus as We Wrap Up Prayer Week 2020. Matthew chapter 8, if you've been in church for a length of time, you've heard this story probably, Jesus cleansed the leper. We teach that to little kids in Sunday school. And the reality is, uh, for some of us, this story is so familiar that it's no longer incredible. We're no longer taken aback by what's happened uh, in this exchange. And so in order to fully appreciate what's going on in this passage and just how incredible this encounter is in Matthew chapter 8, as you're turning there, uh, let me just read to you physically what it was like to be a leper with this man in the text. In the Bible, leprosy could refer to a, a number of skin diseases under that general word of leprosy, but in its worst form, it's what has become known as Hansen's disease. And in Hansen's disease, uh, it starts off with a white or pink discoloration of a small patch of skin. And eventually, if it progresses into a more serious form, it spreads out over their uh, whole bodies, and uh, untreated, uh, it can begin to consume their life and literally their physical bodies. Uh, Commentator William Barclay on this passage uh, describes this progression of Hansen's disease, the worst form of leprosy. Listen to this. This is what's going on in this man's life in the text here in Matthew chapter 8. He says, it began with little nodules on the skin, which would go on to ulcerate. He said those ulcers developed a foul discharge, the eyebrows fall out, the vocal cords become ulcerated, and so therefore the voice becomes hoarse and the breath wheezes as they breathe. The hands and feet always ulcerate in Hansen's disease. Slowly, the sufferer becomes a mass of ulcerated growths. In average, in time, eventually it consumes a person, leads to physical decay, then mental decay, then eventually a comatose state, and finally, death. Leprosy often begins with a loss of sensation in some part of the body. The nerve trunks are affected. The muscles waste away. The tendons contract until their hands become like claws. Then follows the ulceration of the palms of their hands and the bottoms of their feet where they literally cannot walk. Then comes the progression of a loss of fingers or toes. and Until the end, when a whole hand or a whole foot or limb may actually literally drop off of their body. This leprosy duration could go on for years, if not decades, and it's a kind of terrible progressive death in which, literally, Barclay writes, a man dies inch by inch. So it's against that backdrop that we read these verses in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, in this incredible, incredible exchange. And so let's look at Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 together this morning. Verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 1 says, When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And then verse 4 says, And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one? But go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. In this passage, what we see is uh, an incredible principle and pattern that we see repeated over and over in Scripture uh, that, that reminds us that there is a type of posture uh, in prayer that God responds to. There's a type of way that we approach Jesus that He responds to favorably. And so we see this played out literally in this man's life, and then we see it played out multiple Places in uh, scripture. And so, but when we talk about this idea of uh, principles or patterns that God responds favorable to, let me just give you a uh, disclaimer. Well, what we are not doing is a, a listing out or teaching out a formula that strong arms God into doing what otherwise He would not do. So in other words, Lord, if I do this and do this, you know, see this in the Scripture, then, then you have to do this. I'm, I want you to do something that you normally would not do, and you have to do it because I'm following this pattern or principle or formula. Listen, if, if that were true, then we, not God, would be sovereign. Right? Because we would order the affairs of, of God. And so, but what these are, though, are postures and patterns that God sovereignly chooses to respond to. Over and over and over in scripture, and there 's not a place where we see this better illustrated in a more incredulous way than here in Matthew chapter four in Jesus exchange uh, with this leper, so here 's what I to do this morning. I just want to uh, focus on one principle and then two rhythms that help us practice that principle this morning. all right so the principle I want us to zone in on this morning is simply this: is that Jesus responds to our desperation. Jesus responds favorably to desperate People. God, we said this last week, God is attracted to weakness. Uh, we live in a culture that, that, that doesn't celebrate weakness, it celebrates strength, it projects strength, it markets strength, it tells you how to you know, ex- excel and, and all those things. But here's the reality that's no value in the economy of God because God responds to weakness and Jesus responds favorably to our desperation. Uh, this exchange with Jesus and the leper is recorded in, in the first three Gospels. In uh, Mark and Luke, and then we see it here as well in uh, Matthew. And in verse 2 in, in Matthew, it just says a leper came and worshipped him. And, and he said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. But if you would flip over to Luke chapter 5, verse 12, you would see a lot more detail. And that's, that's common because uh, Luke, by trade, was a physician. And so he was always involved in a lot more detail. He wasn't wanted to go on beyond just the general reading that Mark or even Matthew sometimes does. So in Luke chapter 5, verse 12 of this exchange, here's how he describes this man that Matthew just says it was a leper. In Luke chapter 5, verse 12, it says, this man came to Jesus who was full of leprosy. And so what he's saying is that this was not a guy who was early in the stages of this disease. This is a guy who literally was at the near the end of his life. Uh, you know, limbs falling off, all, all everything that we described and helping set the context of what's going on. That's where this man found, found himself physically when he encounters Jesus. And so we, we have to understand that to even appreciate how incredible this exchange is between Jesus and this leprous man. So not only physically... Could everybody see the effects of leprosy on this man? But also, leprosy carried with it some social and spiritual stigmas as well. Socially, while the physical disease was horrible, uh, the social consequences were uh, only added to the misery. According to the historian Josephus, lepers were treated as if they were, in effect, uh, dead men. The Mosaic law prescribed that a leprous person be cut off from all society, including his family. This is a man who, because of his condition, could not hug his children. This is a man who could not put his grandchildren on his lap. This is a man who could not lay down at night next to his wife. This is a man who, in every social scenario, because of this leprosy, had been cut off from all social contact. He had to wear torn clothes out in public to signify his leprosy. He had to have his head uncovered. He had to cover his lips and shout out in public as he mingled about crowds, unclean, unclean, as he moved about through society. And so not only was it devastating physically, socially it was crippling, but not only that, spiritually leprosy affected a man. Leprosy rendered a man in that culture ceremonially unclean. In that culture, there was nothing more grave or more serious than to be considered ceremonially unclean. You could not approach the sanctuary and participate in the sacrifices. You could not participate in all the feasts. You could not be around other people uh, to participate in all the celebrations of their calendar. And so In a very real, practical, tangible sense, leprosy cut off that person's access to God through the normal systems and rhythms that the nation of Israel had experienced. And then even if, by miraculous, this man was healed of leprosy, which almost never happened, he had to go through an extensive purification ritual process that until he completed it, he could not reenter society socially or spiritually. Look at verse 4. That's what Jesus is describing. He knows the custom of that day. Verse 4 in chapter 8 says this, And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but... Go your way, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded. So why would he show himself to the priest? Because he had to go through the priest and have this whole purification, uh, long, drawn-out process before he could even re-engage in the society socially and spiritually. According to the Jewish Talmud, the closest a leper could come to someone when they had this disease, who did not have the disease, the closest they could come into contact with anyone was six feet and so as this man moved about crowds, a, a six-foot radius would be around him as people would part ways. And listen to this. If the wind was blowing, the distance extended to 150 feet because they were afraid whatever this man had, as the wind blew, it might carry it and other people might be affected. So when the wind was blowing, 150-foot radius from all contact from people. But yet here's a leper who's cut off from society socially, who's cut off from access to God spiritually, but yet he gets close enough to Jesus that Jesus hears his requests and honors it. The punishment for violating these expected standards if you had leprosy was public flogging And the point of that was not to only inflict physical pain to deter them from coming to contact with people while they were considered unclean, but it was also to promote public humiliation to tell other people, hey, if you have leprosy and you do this, this is exactly what will happen to all of you. This leper was ceremonially unclean, he's a spiritual outcast, yet... Verse 2 says this, this man came and worshiped Jesus. And the reality is, you cannot worship Jesus from a distance. It is an up-close encounter. And that's exactly what this ceremonially unclean man experienced here in verse 2. And it was nothing short of scandalous. But folks, can we agree? Grace is always scandalous. Amen? Grace is always risking and distributing to people that that have no uh, business receiving what grace offers. And so we see this illegal, unclean, scandalous act that happens here in Matthew chapter eight. Apart from all the understanding of what it meant to have leprosy, we just read this and go, oh, Jesus healed a guy. He did that all the time. No big deal. Mark it down. This was a scandalous act here in Matthew chapter eight. And what do we see? We see, once again, Jesus responding to desperate people we see a man who says, hey, I can't even touch anyone, let alone ask for someone to help me or heal me or, or alleviate my suffering. But he comes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He's totally desperate and throws himself on the mercy of Jesus. And Jesus responds to desperate people. Over and over, we see this in scripture. God inclines his ear to desperate people. The Bible uh, calls this, uh, posture before God as crying out, coming to the place like this man in Matthew 8, where are totally dependent on Jesus for, for everything you need, totally desperate for God to move in your situation. And so scripture describes this as crying out. Uh, we learned last week in James chapter 4 that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that's the humble posture this man has. He's humbly coming for the Lord and saying, I have no hope apart from you, he's crying out to Jesus, to do something that only Jesus can do. And over and over again, we see God responding favorably to that. Let me just consider the following in Scripture. We see Peter sinking in the waves, and Jesus doesn't rescue him till when till he cries out in total desperation. We see a woman pleading with Jesus to deliver her demon-possessed daughter until she comes to a place of desperation. Jesus does not respond. We see the entire book of Psalms filled with people crying out for desperation, and until they come to that place, God does not move on their behalf, but once they come to that place, God responds. Listen to these psalms. Here's just a few. Psalm chapter 50, verse 15, "'Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will glorify me.'" Psalm thirty-four, seventeen, says this, "'The righteous cry, and the Lord hears.'" That and there means cause and effect. "'As I cry out, the Lord inclines his ear and delivers them out of all their troubles.'" Psalm 56, 9, when I cry out to you, then, cause and effect, then my enemies will turn back. This I know, for God is for me. And so the Bible is filled with example over and over and over again of people coming to the Lord just like this man did, totally despondent, totally desperate, totally dependent. If Jesus does not move on our behalf, we're totally sunk, and it's in that posture that God often finally responds. So I'm not totally convinced of that. Let me just write off some more passages. First Kings chapter 17, Elijah cried out and God revived a dead child. 2 Chronicles chapter 18, Jehoshaphat cried out, God delivered him from death. 2 Chronicles 32, Hezekiah cries out, God gives his army victory. Luke chapter 8, Jesus' disciples cry out, Jesus is asleep in the boat, the waves don't awaken him, the thunder doesn't awaken him, it's the cry of his disciples that awakens him and Jesus calms the storm. Mark chapter 10, blind Bartimaeus on the side of the road calls out and Jesus restores his sight. And so what, what all the things we see this over and over, it's so common, but make no mistake, here in Matthew chapter It is an incredible exchange between this man and Jesus. And Jesus responds once again to desperate people. Now remember what I told you about this man? He could not hug his children. He could not sit his grandchildren on his lap. He could not lay down next to his wife at night. People had to keep a six-foot Distance from him at all times. If the wind was blowing, that extended out to 150 feet. Remember all of that that was true for this man. It's the real life that he's living. And against that truth, look at chapter 8, verse 3. What does it say? Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him. What? This is a man who had not experienced physical touch in years, maybe even decades. And yet here is God in the flesh, the Messiah, responding to desperation in this man and reaches out and makes physical contact with a man who was ceremonially unclean and touches him as an expression of compassion and a response to his dependency for a man who had not been touched and experienced that in years. That's how powerful this exchange is. That Jesus responds over and over and over and over again in Scripture uh, to desperate people. And often we see in Scripture, God does not respond until we come to a place where we're totally desperate, totally despondent, totally helpless, and we cry out. And when we do, God inclines his ear to us. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, I've been coming here for a little while on this idea of desperation-dependent prayers, I feel like it's something you guys keep teaching on back over and over again. And the reason it feels that way is because we are. Uh, every now and then, Tasha will uh, call me at work. I'm in the middle of something, and uh, she often asks, what are you doing? I was like, I'm just sitting here praying for you, waiting for you to call. It's odd that you would call at this very moment, right? That's I tell her first. And, uh, you know, she'll, she'll get this conversation. I'm in the middle of something, and she'll say something. Along the way, she'll say, I kind of feel like you're trying to hurry me off the phone. And I said, well, the reason it feels that way is because I am, right? That's why she's like, I knew it. And so if it feels like, oh, that kind of feels what's going on. You're teaching us desperate prayer, dependent prayer. We keep going back to that, keep going back to that. And the reason it feels that way is because we are. And let me tell you why we keep hitting on this theme, why I want to touch on it again as we wrap up prayer. Here. Here's why. We're in a great season in our church. God's doing some incredible things in our church. We're grateful to God for it. But let me tell you, there's two dangers in this season. One is disunity, I've been here uh, 10 years and uh, n- no disunity, no, no that kind of stuff, all those kind of things, right? And so here, here's the other one, though, uh, is a lack of dependency upon the Lord. When I got here uh, 10 years ago, the church was in a bad place and going to get foreclosed on. Literally hundreds of people had left the church, and the church was absolutely desperate. And the good thing about that is, is we become dependent on God for everything, right? I remember when I got here, someone said, hey, what's your vision? I said, we're going to see if God can build a church based on prayer and the word, I said, because that's the only thing we can afford, right? That's just kind of the place we were in. And so let me just share with you some stats and why I think this is such a dangerous place for our church to not be desperate and dependent as we were uh, 10 years ago. So let me, ju- let me just share some stats with you. So uh, October of 2009, so a little over 10 years ago, I had my first in-person interview with Liberty Heights Church and, and their search team. And I remember asking at that point in time, I'd you know, driven by the church, I lived in the area, so I knew it was a big church, and, and I said, hey, I, said, I know you guys have struggled. I said, um, how many people were at your church last week? And they said about 330. And I said, well, when you add in the kids and the nursery, like, what's the total? No, 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 330 is everybody and four geese in the parking lot. Like, dude, that's everybody, right? I went back in in October of 2009 uh, when I first had this interview. The average attendance that month was 369 people in total attendance. Uh, Contrast that last Sunday, our total campus attendance last Sunday uh, was 1,266. Over the past 10 years, uh, our budget has grown by over a million dollars uh, in 10 years. Uh, when I got here, there were four of us on staff. Uh, this year's budget, there's position, uh, funding for 25 people on staff. Uh, some, I think next August, uh, we'll have hit the $5 million mark in debt reduction. Uh, come next, so, so listen, so, so here's what I can say with total integrity. We are more resourced than we've ever been to take the gospel further, faster. And also, I can say this with integrity, we're in a dangerous place. You know Why? Because an increase in resources often leads to a decrease in dependence and God only responds to dependent, desperate people. We see over and over and over and over again in the scriptures. Can I just say this? Uh, God has resources and blessed us and I'm grateful for that. But here's the deal. Listen, we're the leper in this story. That's us. That's how Jesus found us. Unclean, outcast, couldn't get access to the Father. And he brought us in and reached out and touched us and brought us close as we worship and all, listen. And we're still there, just as desperate, just as the never forget. No matter how many resources we may have, we are just as desperate as this man. You and I are the lepers in the story. And so, an increase of resources that we've had in the last ten years often leads to a decrease in dependence, and that's dangerous. So there's some church stats that may lead us to less dependence. Let me give you some community stats. Uh, just a little demographic study, within a five mile radius of our church, 25% of the households have a net worth of greater than $1 million. Of that 25%, uh, 50% of them have a net worth of greater than $2 million. The median household income in our zip code is $115,000 compared to the national average of 55000 the, the rate of college graduates is 31% compared to the national average of uh, 19%. So, so in a quick uh, glance, you can see we're, we're ministering in an area that has an abundance of financial and educational resources. So, so on one hand, we shouldn't feel guilty that God has providentially placed us in this nation, prosperous, all those things. On the other hand, we should also realize that if God has prospered us, it's to raise our standard of giving, not just our standard of living. So, so don't Fall prey to those two extremes, uh, but here's what we should also realize in light of those stats an abundance of resources often leads to a decrease in dependence on God. And we're in a community that's well educated and well compensated, and so therefore we have very few tangible needs. And when we're not needy, we're no longer dependent. And if we're not dependent, guess what? God doesn't respond. God doesn't respond. And so that's the danger for us collectively, that's the danger for us uh, individually, and make no mistake, we're the leper in this story. So many times I've heard people preach on the parable of the Good Samaritan Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, and they talk about, you know, uh, the, the priest and, and why he didn't stop and the, and the Levite and why he couldn't stop. And then finally, the Good Samaritan, he stopped and he bandaged his wounds and took him to the inn and, you know, paid his fee, all that kind of stuff. And, and I've heard pastors ask this, hey, of those three people, the priest, the Levite, and the, the Good Samaritan, which one are you in that story? And we, we like to think, well, surely I'd, I'd be the Good Samaritan, right? I mean, I'm, sometimes I'm too pious and sometimes I'm too busy but but for the most part I think I'd be the good samaritan in that story. Listen, the answer is all the above are wrong. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, we're the person half dead on the side of the road until Jesus, the Good Samaritan, comes and rescues us and finds us when we're helpless and hopeless, binds up our wombs, puts us in the inn, pays the bill and says, hey, if the bill grows, here's for tomorrow's sins as well. We are the person dead on the side of the road. We are the leper in this story. And no matter if our resources go up, our dependence cannot go down because God responds to desperate people. So let me ask you a question. In what area of your life are you desperate for God to move? Listen, in our affluent culture, in our, listen, you know what we think a trial is? Is on a morning like today, our seed heater doesn't work. And I'm not saying that's not serious, amen, I'm just, I'm, that's, Right? But we live in the most prosperous country on the earth. We shouldn't feel guilty that God's providentially ordered that. But on the other side, listen, an abundance of resources can lead to a decrease in dependency. So let me ask you again, what in your life are you desperate for God to do? Where in your life are you desperate for God to move? And it may not be even for your own needs. It may be for the needs of someone you love, but mark it down. God inclines his ear to desperate people. Jesus responds favorably to lepers. And that's who we are in this story. One writer said this, your prayers will not mean anything to God until they mean everything to you. Let me repeat that. Your prayers will not mean anything to God until they mean everything to you. And so that's the only principle I wanna wanna teach you this morning is that God responds to desperate people, that Jesus responds favorably to desperate, dependent people like this man in Matthew chapter eight. And an increase of resources often leads to diminished dependency. Now, let me make a little confession. When I first started preaching, I was uh, 25 years old. I just want to say this. I was unusually wise for 25, in case you're wondering, all right? That was not true. But when I was first preaching, (laughs) I thought um, a great sermon was people left feeling guilty and convicted, right? Right? Like uh, back with my first church, you know, you would stand at the back and you know, pa- stand, pastor stand at the back door and, you know, all the people would come and, and greet the pastor, shake his hand, shake his hand, shake his hand. I thought, listen, if no one could make eye contact with me, I preached a great sermon, right? They're shamed. That's why you should never hire a 25 year old pastor, right? But then I realized, you know, somewhere along the way, the last 20 years, that there's nothing wrong with challenging people spiritually, but people should not leave feeling guilty, they should leave feeling equipped. Like, hey, you've challenged me, and I need to be challenged, but help me. Here's here's what I realized. The people I were yelling at early in my ministry were the ones voluntarily actually showing up, assuming like, hey, I'm here to grow, right? And so uh, I'm just assuming that you you got up this morning and, and got dressed and combed your hair some, most of you to your hair right that you're here because you're like hey challenge me but help me grow equip me so that i can live out of these truths in a more biblically faithful way so, so here's what i want to do the last few minutes together i just want to teach you very practically what it looks like to develop a pattern to grow independent prayer uh in in, in the scriptures okay so here's what i want to teach you uh, super super practical right So uh, in your little uh, prayer card that you uh, got there, on the back of that is two verses to meditate on. So if you just pull that out and look at that, on the back of that, the first one, the morning meditation is John chapter 15. Apart from you, I can do nothing. Talk about dependent. Lord, if I don't spend time with you today, if I don't have your presence today, I can't do anything of spiritual uh, power. I can't do anything of spiritual profit. I can't make any spiritual progress. Lord, I'm totally dependent on you. I'm meditating on that truth this morning. That's Dependency. And the second verse, Galatians chapter five, the fruit of the spirit, guess what that's meant to do? To teach dependency as well. You should sit down every night and when you lay your head and say, Lord, search my heart. And which of these, Lord, are not present in my life? And then just say, God, I'm totally dependent on you to change my heart so that my life looks like these uh, attributes and fruits here in Galatians chapter five. And Lord, only you can do that. My heart's prone towards sin and selfishness. So Lord, I'm dependent and desperate for you to produce the change in my heart where my life looks like these verses. So you start off your morning dependent. Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing. You end your day saying, Lord, I can't, I can't do these things. Galatians 5, I can't produce this. I need you to work. I'm dependent on you, Lord. That's how you should start and end every day. Total dependency on the Lord Jesus Christ. What about in the middle, though? What about in the middle in your day? Let me just teach you two rhythms of dependent prayer to grow in. Uh, very practical. Number one, uh, drawing away. Luke chapter 5 verse 16 says, But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Go back to Matthew chapter 8, look at verse 1. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And so as the multitudes followed him, Jesus knew all the demands around him. He said, listen, there has to be seasons where I get away and carve out extended time just to spend with the Father, uh, renewing my own uh, soul. And, and, And so if Jesus modeled that, we have to embrace that as well. Now let me get as practical as possible. Last week, um, I did a Facebook live where I shared some patterns and principles as it relates to prayer. How many of you watch that Facebook live video that I put out there? Just, all right, keep your hands up. Now, these are the people in the room who are going to heaven. Look around, all right? <laughs> right? Uh, someone said, I watched it, it was like a solar eclipse. I knew I shouldn't look right at it, but I couldn't turn my eyes away, right? There was some, there was some shenanigans early on. If you've seen it, you don't want to talk about it. If you haven't seen it, uh, listen, if you want to go to heaven, watch it this afternoon, all right? But in there, I just said, hey, here's some helpful patterns and practices um, that I would remind you of if you saw it and that I would uh, share with you if you did not see that uh, Facebook Live to, to help you in developing this habit of drawing away. Cause I'm just gonna be honest with you. This does not come easy for me. It feels like uh, there's so many things to do and so much to get done. This idea of carving out time where I'm I'm not doing anything except spending it with the Lord, I just feel like I just don't have time for that, right? And You probably feel that way as well. So so let me just tell you some things that have been helpful, uh, practical as I can. Number one, pick a time and a place. Pick a time and a place. Colossians chapter 4 verse 2 says, Devote yourselves in prayer. You know what devotion requires? It requires discipline. It requires the intentional setting aside of time and resources to devote yourself to something. John Ortberg, in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, writes the following as it relates to choosing a place for prayer. Here's what he said. He said, over time, a space that is used again and again for prayer becomes sacred. He says, often couples have their favorite restaurants that are sacred to them. How many of you have a special place that you go to? With your spouse or your boyfriend, or your girl. Like, just special, like when we go here, right? Just a special place, certain anniversaries, those things, a few of you do. Tasha, and I, listen, every special occasion, every birthday, every anniversary, every uh, Christmas Eve, every New Year's Day, every Valentine's Day, listen, we have a place. We go to White Castle every single time. She loves it. She loves it, right? But, son, you know, if you've got a place, that's not our place, by the way. It's my place, it's not her place. So if you. Like, that place becomes sacred. There's all this time, there's all these uh, memories of spending time together. He's saying, listen, you should have a place like that with the Lord. That this is the place where I meet and commune with Jesus, and it's sacred because it's so special, all the memories it contains. He goes on to write. He says, "Um, having one place where you've met God in prayer over the years becomes a gift to your soul. I remember Andy Stanley Uh, telling a story about prayer in his house. His dad, Dr. Charles Stanley, who's pastored uh, First Baptist Atlanta for 181 years, um, he said when I was growing up, he said at our house we had a special oversized chair. And he said any time that we saw my dad sitting in that chair, we knew what that meant, that my dad was spending time with the Lord and we did not go near him and we did not interrupt him if my dad was sitting in that chair. His dad had a time and a place in his life to meet with God. So let me ask you this, where's your time and where's your place? Develop a time and a place. Here's the second thing I would encourage you to do is to develop a pattern. The reason we designed those prayer cards, if you have that, if you look at that, if, you, if I said, hey, have you ever prayed for 30 minutes straight or, or could you pray for 30 minutes straight? Like, oh man, my, my mind would wander. I keep repeating the same things over and over. I could never pray for 30 minutes straight. You know why we designed that prayer card? One, we stole it off someone smarter than us. Number two, here's what we found. If you pray through those six concentric circles for five minutes each, guess what? You've just prayed for 30 minutes in a very intentional way, asking God to meet your needs, independent prayer, asking God to use you to reach the neighbors, of the nations for the gospel, interceding on behalf of your family, your church family, and those kind of things so just develop some kind of pattern you may have a different pattern but listen if you pick a time and a place and develop a pattern you'll be ahead of the game when it comes to drawing away for seasons of prayer and so you should have times of drawing away and then here's the second thing quickly your life should also be marked if you want to grow independent prayer by constant conversation first Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 17 says this pray continually now that sounds spiritual but it doesn't sound practical so how do you do that? Here's the reality. You just simply, as you're going about the day, encountering situations. As you're going about the day, worrying about things. Take those things you're encountering. Take those things you're worrying and stop worrying about them. Start praying about them. Prayer is the antidote to worry. Did you know that? Worry says, Lord, I, I can't. And I, and I know I can't, so I'm worried. Prayer says, God, but I believe you can. Several years ago, Christianity Today produced a list of books, the, the 100 most influential books ever written uh, for, for Christian audiences, and number one, you just read these books, like I've, I've read some of those, there's so many classics, C.S. Lewis, I mean, just all these incredible books. Number one on the list was a little-known book called Learning Conversational Prayer by Rosalind Rinker. Never heard of it. So it's number one most, here's what she wrote. She said, conversational prayer is at quiet time. We allow the child within us to meet with Jesus and talk with him about everything in our lives, the good, the bad, and everything in between. And so if you want to grow in dependent prayer, guess what? You've got to carve out time away with the Lord. But you also should have a pattern of just going throughout your day in conversational prayer with Jesus. Saying, Lord, I'm encountering this situation. I'm entering this relationship. I'm entering this whatever this situation is. And, Lord, I cannot do this. I'm totally dependent on you to work in me and through me in light of all these things I'm encountering. And if you do that, guess what? You'll grow in your dependency on the Lord Jesus. Because prayer is openly saying, I can't, but I believe that God can. And you know what we see in Scripture? God responds to desperate people. God is attracted to weakness. And so let me close this prayer week by reminding you one more time, your prayers will not mean anything to God until they mean everything to you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? Your head bowed and your eyes closed. The good news is this morning there's one prayer that God always answers every single time. It's the prayer of repentance for people that need Jesus. And so I'd ask you this morning, with your head bowed, and your eyes closed, a very important question. That question is simply this What are you trusting in for the forgiveness of your sins? And if you're trusting in your life of good works and your morality, then basically what you're saying is this, God, I'm independent. I don't need Jesus' help to get to heaven. And the problem with that is this. Jesus responds to dependent people. Jesus responds to desperate people who say, I need you for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm throwing myself on your mercy. So let me ask you again, what are you trusting in for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you dependent on Jesus and Jesus alone? And if the answer is no, or I'm not sure, here's the good news of grace. You can throw yourself on his mercy today. And Jesus will respond to you just like he responded to this leper. He'll reach out and receive you, extend his unconditional love, and cleanse you from all of your sins. And so if that's you this morning, would you pray and receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Would you cry out and say, I'm desperate to have my sins forgiven. I'm totally dependent on Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross for me. I'm denouncing all my good works, all my morality, and I need Jesus this morning. Would you pray that? Jesus always responds to a prayer of repentance. For those of you who have received Jesus Christ, you've been walking with him. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I just want to ask you so that I can pray with you and encourage you. I wonder how many of you would say, I have a situation in my life where I am desperate for God to move, for God to work. Maybe for your own life, it may be on behalf of someone else, but you're at a place where you're saying, I am desperate for God to move in this. I'm totally dependent on him to do something. If that's you, heads are bowed, eyes are closed, I just wanna pray for you. Would you just raise your hand and say, that's me, I've got a situation in my life, I'm desperate for God to move. Lots of you, lots of you. God bless you for your honesty. Can I just pray for you as a way to encourage you this morning? God, we know that behind raised hands are broken hearts. And God, it's discouraging sometimes to feel like we're praying and you're not moving. But God, let us be encouraged today by what we've learned, that when we're desperate, we're finally at the place finally dependent on you where you can move on our behalf. And so, Lord, for all the people who are discouraged and desperate today, God, let them be encouraged. Let them be reminded and comforted and encouraged today that you're a God who inclines his ear to desperate people, that Jesus responds favorably to people who are totally dependent on him in every single situation. So, Lord, encourage our hearts with that truth that our prayers are not wasted. And God, we're grateful that you saw us broken and unclean and desperate. And in your mercy, you sent Jesus on our behalf. And so God, let us be a people who always remembers that you are attracted to weakness. And God, in our broken times and places in our life those are the times we can truly encounter your favor and so lord encourage us and comfort us with that truth as we move ahead this week we pray that all in jesus's wonderful name because we can amen well if you're here this morning